Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, we're going to read the Bible now. Uh, We are back in Acts, which is very exciting. So today we're in Acts 19, verses 21 to 41. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Thanks very much, Kim, for reading. Hey, everyone, it's good to see you tonight. Uh, This is, uh, it's not really our first Sunday gathering of 2020, but it kind of feels a bit like it. We've uh, cruised through some Psalms during January, and now we're sort of back into our kind of regular kind of Bible teaching, Bible input gathering and things like that. Our coffee ministry, who's had a coffee or a dirty chai or a cup of tea tonight, who's had one of those? We've been missing that for a month, Mark. No, um, we, we gave, uh, deliberately, we gave our coffee team a month off on January. They've been at the beach on Sunday nights. And uh, no, um, it's been great for them to have a rest. Obviously, we've had our dinner ministry. It's taken a break for January. That's back on tonight. So if you um, are willing to, able to uh, stick around for dinner tonight, that would be a great thing 
to do. I'm Simon, I'm the lead pastor here, and it's great to see you tonight. We're, we're diving back into the book of Acts. Um, I don't know, most churches, probably this sort of Sunday, this sort of first Sunday of the year-ish, they sort of have like a vision Sunday where they sort of paint the picture for the rest of the year. Um, we're just going to dive back into the book of Acts. And I think in this passage tonight, we're going to actually kind of, I don't know, as, as Jesse prayed earlier, I think we hopefully will have our passion stirred and be renewed for this year to live for Jesus, to love like Jesus uh, in the power of his spirit. So um, to that end, I want to pray and ask God to speak to us tonight. And I would love it if you had Acts 19 just sort of flopped open in front of you as well as we go through tonight. Uh, that'd be good. But let's pray. Ask God to speak to us tonight. Father, we praise you and thank you for all the good things you give us. We thank you, Father, for this day. Lord, we thank you for the things we've been able to get done today, the people we've been able to spend time with today, and thank you, Father, for bringing us here tonight. Uh, Lord, we, we, we know that you've got each one of us here tonight for a reason. Uh, maybe it's because, Lord, uh, this is where we always come Sunday nights. Maybe you're here for the first time, and Lord, you've brought people here, and there's a word you want them to hear. So, Father, I pray that tonight, as we all gather around your word in the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would see Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would hear Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would all leave here loving Jesus, uh, renewed in his grace, finding rest in him. And Father, above all, I also pray that we would find confidence tonight in your word, in your spirit, uh, to live for Jesus, to love like Jesus this week and until we see him and enjoy him forever. And Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, raw power. Raw power. Um, I, uh, we've seen some awesome pictures, I think, recently in our world of what raw power looks like. Um, you might recall the, uh, the White Island volcano eruption just recently, raw power. Um, earthquakes are regular, tsunamis even of not so long ago. Uh, and there's a photo up on the screen here of just the recent raw power of the bushfires that have ravaged so much of our country, Australia, and very much locally here, Cudley Creek. Um, raw power raging across Kangaroo Island. Raw powers, those flames just kind of destroying anything and everything in their path. Uh, devastating, terrifying, raw power. We also see around us all the time, and perhaps even ever increasingly, a raw power of public opinion. Uh, last year we had a, a time together thinking about call-out culture, people's opinions kind of laying over the top of individuals um, and crushing people, and we see the raw power of public opinion all the time. And, and one example that just came to my mind was just in the last couple of weeks, um, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I have been watching little moments of the Australian Open. Um, and it's, it was, it's hard, right, to avoid watching the Australian Open and hearing comments about Margaret Court. Um, I don't know if you know Margaret Court. There's a photograph of her up on the left. Margaret Court, um, probably Australia's greatest tennis player of all time. She won 24 Grand Slams. No one has ever done that before. She's top of the charts. Um, she, great, you know, sporting champion. Um, for a long time, loved by all of Australia, upheld by Australians as a great woman, a public figure to follow, a wonderful sporting hero. During the, um, during the Australian Open, though, she was to receive an award. Um, not so long ago, Margaret Court, she's a follower of the Lord Jesus, she came out publicly with some statements about her take on um, marriage and same-sex marriage, and they weren't received well by the majority of our population. 
So much so that there's a court at Adelaide um, at the Australian Open um, in that sort of open area um, called Margaret Court Arena. And there have been moves because of her stance on sexuality or her stance on marriage and things like that, that they should rename that stadium. Uh, you can see John McEnroe and Martina Navratilova there holding a sign saying Yvonne Gulingong Arena, change the name. Um, she has yeah, faced the raw power of public opinion. So much so that during the tournament, she was awarded a particular prize of, you know, uh, to celebrate her wonderful career, her an amazing efforts to win so many Grand Slams and Australian Opens. Um, there was heaps of attempts to actually try and completely squash that award altogether that she would never receive it. It went ahead, but on the night when she was received the award, there was deathly silence in the stadium. Um, thankfully, there was no booing or hissing or things like that, but she was not lauded for the champion that she is because of her opinions, the raw power of public opinion. The raw power of public opinion is on display as we open the Bible tonight, as we come to Acts chapter 19, and look at this incident in Ephesus. I've got a map on the screen. Um, this is just a map of sort of back in those first century times. Um, Ephesus is really modern day Turkey. Um, we've been following the book of Acts. This is our third sort of dive back in. We did one section at the beginning of last year. We dove back in later in the year. Um, the whole book of Acts is all about the good news of Jesus advancing from Jerusalem, which is sort of off the map on our right, um, all the way from Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the, the gospel going from Jerusalem into Judea, a bit north of Jerusalem, the city, and across into Samaria and into the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. The risen Lord Jesus, he dies for the sins of the world, rises to new life, ascends to the right hand of the Father. Just before he does ascend, he says, wait here in Jerusalem until the power has been sent to you on high to empower you to be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And we've been tracking the good news of Jesus as it goes to the ends of the earth. And tonight, as we dive back in, we are in Ephesus. And really the raw power of public opinion is on Display. We encounter a mob um, aroused by self-interest, thinly disguised in a cloak of sort of religious moral piety. Um, it's frightening in its intensity, unpredictable in what it will do next. I don't know if you've ever been caught in a mob that's kind of grown violent. It can get pretty scary at times. Um, Ephesus was the home of this place, the Temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana or Aphrodite, all about love. Um, this wasn't just any old temple, by the way. This was, in its day, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You know, people would go there to see it. Um, I don't know the exact dimensions. It's like a 140 metres long in its heyday. It doesn't look like that anymore, by the way. But in its heyday, 140 metres long, you know, 40 odd metres high, massive structure. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the riot that we just had read about was doubtless brewing for months, right? When the inquiry takes place afterwards, you discover the seeds of this riot were sort of way back. But there still needed to be a spark to set off this particular riot. And the spark was a report, an economic report, showing that, economic, that manufacturing was down. There was a downturn in manufacturing. And Demetrius, right, the, the union boss of the silversmiths of Ephesus, um, called a meeting. He seems really skilled at knowing how to push people's buttons and fire people up. Um, he fans his members into a frightening mob. 
And he blames the loss of trade and income, you'll notice in verse 26 of the scriptures, on a guy named Paul, the apostle. On Paul's insistence that man-made gods are no gods at all. Quickly becomes an appeal to kind of patriotism. The slogan would have been, Ephesus is an Artemis city. You know, a bit like some people might say, Australia is a Christian country, you know. The good name of Artemis needs to be defended. And the mood turns ugly, right? And the mood turns ugly and the, the mob starts to sweep down the streets and they go past the riot police. I don't know if they had riot police back in the first century, but if they did, they would have been there, into the open-air theatre and it turns into this rowdy, full-on town hall kind of meeting. Frightening, loud, angry, dangerous, people making irrational comments. They were furious, verse 28. And verse 34, they all shout in unison for two hours, great is Diana, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Can you imagine doing that for 24 hours? Great is Andrew Tran out in the car park. No, for two hours, insane. We wouldn't do that, but we do love you. Um, And you know, it's the only person, if you listen to the scriptures, the only person who can kind of calm down this full-on mob is the city clerk who finally kind of says, whoa, just let's think about this. When he finally stands up, he actually points that the Christians haven't broken any laws of the land. Um, You know, should Demetrius and his crew kind of want to test that, the courts are open, they can go and do that, That's that's up to him. I think the clerk actually even makes it clear that Demetrius might be in a bit of bother, you know, with his kind of behavior. He might have something to answer for. But then the meeting kind of fizzles out and everyone just goes home. That's, that's the story. I mean, if you'd been there, I reckon you could have like, you know, had one of those like, ideas where you could have dined out, you know, I was there when this riot took place. You, know, you could be like, oh, this is, remember that? Remember three years ago, that thing? Oh, it was incredible. The story's gritty, it's gripping, it's frightening, it's memorable, it's unpredictable. But you know what? As I've been studying this passage, the question that keeps coming up into my mind as I've been thinking about it again and again is why on earth is this story in the Bible? Why on earth is this story in the Bible? Why does Luke, the author of the book of Acts, include this incident in this book of Acts? You know, he doesn't write absolutely everything that took place in the book of Acts or in this particular time of of history. He's really selective about what he includes across these 28 chapters. The question is, why? What is this part of God's, why is this in the Bible? And because I don't want you to go to sleep, because I want you to think, I want you to turn to the person around you, pick the person you think will know the answer to the question so you don't have to answer it. No, Um, ask that person, why do you think this incident, this riot is in the Bible? Why has Luke included it? Go, I'll give you like a one and a half to two minutes. That'll be enough time. Go, have a think. Why is this in the Bible? Go for it. All right. I won't, uh, I won't have you share your brilliant answers, but that would help because I have no idea. No. Um, why is this? In, what is it doing? I hope you had some good thoughts to say. See how we go. We can talk about, we can compare our thoughts after over some pasta. Um, if you're familiar with um, the book of Acts, right, Acts 1 to 18, um, you know, we come across a riot tonight in Ephesus. Riots aren't new in the book of Acts. Um, there, was a, uh, there was a riot in Acts 14, there was a, a riot in 16, 17 and 18. So why this one? Why, why this one? Why so much detail about this particular riot? 
You know, why not just press on to Rome? Let's get to Acts 28. You know, that's where we really want to get to anyway. We'll get there eventually as a church on March the 15th. But just this, why this riot? Why can't we just press on? What do we learn from this unique, one-off incident anyway? Well, I think there are two lessons tonight. I mean, there's more, but I think there are at least two lessons we can learn. Uh, two reminders. Two reminders that constantly appear page after page after page through the good news and through the Bible. Um, two lessons that I think we need to know afresh tonight to start this year well, to do this year well in the name of Jesus. And the first one is this. God's gospel keeps provoking opposition. God's gospel keeps provoking opposition. Now, when I say God's gospel, I mean the, the whole story of what's involved when you get caught up with King Jesus. And you see, the gospel, right, won't allow you and me to keep our heads under the parapet permanently anyway. The gospel won't stay a private thing. Of course, the gospel must be some kind of a, a personal one. You must come to a personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ but it's not the kind of faith that can be contained. It absolutely impacts everything. The gospel transforms lives. We got to hear a bit about that with Yumong tonight as she got baptised and began to tell us a little bit about what does it look like for the gospel to transform her life. And it will no doubt keep doing that as she keeps walking with the Lord. The gospel transforms lives, so it will impact our habits, impact our patterns, impact our rhythms of life that, you know, that, that we and those around us have grown used to and comfortable with. And here in this particular passage, knowing Jesus as your king affected the local economy. Spending habits, purchasing habits have completely changed. Long before the days of Facebook and Twitter, a network rose up, right? that confronted the situation of the day, the economic trade of the day. Little silver shrines with a statue of a goddess Artemis on it were, were sort of declining in sales because a group of people, a network of people, had moved in a different direction. Whatever the slumps in sale were, we don't really know. The impact was significant enough to create fear and to spark a riot. But my point here, right, is living for Jesus, living for King Jesus will mean there are just some things we do not do. For these Christians in Ephesus in the first century, it was not to buy, they didn't support, they didn't sponsor, they didn't worship false gods. And of course, it means the same for us today. And I think our brothers and sisters around the globe, this is a particular hard thing for them to do where they live in a really religious culture. Muslim, Hindu, and, and actually even where secularism has a kind of religious kind of fervour or flavour to it, as the last century proved all too clearly, becomes a real challenge. For us today, living for King Jesus means there are just some things we will not do. We won't support the worship of false gods like mammon or sex or power or the self. Man-made gods are no gods at all. Now, please note, there wasn't a deliberate sort of calculated campaign by these early Christians to bring down Artemis. It wasn't like they all got together and said, right, what can we do to kind of wreck Artemis and the whole thing around there? I mean, I don't know, we love campaigns as human beings, right? Especially when they're campaigns against things, you know, when we can sort of take something out. But this was a turning to Jesus, they didn't sort of go, let's take down Artemis, let's wreck the economy of Ephesus. Just a bunch of people had found something better. 
And that had a massive impact on the city. This was a church, right, that two or three years ago didn't even exist. What an impact. A bit like us, right? We, we didn't exist about three years ago as a church in North Adelaide. Here was a church established by God that was actually beginning to kind of change the world around them. Here in Ephesus, this baby church impacted the local economy, upset the local establishment. And the gospel will always do that, right? It'll always have that effect when it sits on the edge of communities and cultures that aren't shaped by Christianity or a bit like ours who've kind of turned their back on that particular shape. So as the gospel keeps surfacing in the public square, allowing its sort of way to weave in, elbowing into the conversation, I don't know, putting its hand up to ask slightly awkward questions or, you know, people embarrassingly saying statements that include God in their particular opinion. You know, man-made gods are no gods at all. It's no surprise that God's gospel keeps provoking opposition. I think it's one of the least surprising things about this incident is to see the gospel sparking opposition, gospel ministry sparking opposition. It's been the story repeated time and time and time again through the book of Acts. There's a myth, right, that we Christians, particularly in the West, there's a myth that we can cling to despite all the evidence that kind of flies in the face of us on every single page of the Bible, here's the myth, that you can enjoy the gospel and fit in really neatly to the world around you. That's the myth. That you can enjoy the gospel and just kind of fit in. You don't have to go looking for trouble, right, to discover that even in this country, right, if you put your hand up as a Christian, you know, we've seen a string of relatively minor legal cases about everything from wearing a cross at work through to praying with someone in a hospital. That'll get you into trouble. And if that's true for our increasingly secular culture like ours, imagine the situation in religious cultures where the church or the, the religious faith of the, that nation kind of drives all things. Like Ephesus, right, like so many parts of our world today, you know, Jesus cannot be fitted into the ever-expanding sort of pantheon of gods. As soon as I preach Jesus Christ is Lord, the question comes, right, well, what does that do for Artemis? Speak of King Jesus and I instantly set up the scene for a showdown with Queen Diana or Queen Aphrodite. Now, many countries in our world today with a strong religious culture, especially, but by no means only, Muslim and Hindu nations, they spot that tension immediately. And they begin to shape their society and their laws around it to make it illegal to be a follower of Jesus. Um, when I was much younger, um, I walked um, up into the Himalayas in Nepal. And I was a young Christian, and uh, this was about 20 years ago, um, I fell in love with the country, I fell in love with its people, I was a new Christian and I started praying for the country of Nepal, I started learning a little bit about it and I, I realised that um, over time, right, Nepal is, well, very, the Christian church in Nepal is one of the smallest in the world but it's one of the fastest growing in the world, it's incredible. There are so many people becoming Christians in Nepal, it's unbelievable. But the Nepali government doesn't really like them very much. And it set up laws to kind of, well, prevent the spread of Christianity. So you can go to their law, Article 160 of their code, and it says this, no one will be allowed to do anything and behave in any way 
that could cause a person to lose faith in their traditional religion or convert to a different religion. But proclaiming Christ comes with a maximum five-year prison term for a local person in Nepal or deportation if you're a foreigner. It's really hard to preach Christ faithfully in that country. You can't preach, right, the Ten Commandments in that country. You shall make for yourself no idols. It's hard. Man-made gods, they're no gods at all. You can't do that. Preaching Jesus clearly will impact those who have other religious backgrounds. And Luke, Luke includes this story. As Luke includes this story, it's just another way of him reminding us about the expectations of what it is to live as a Christian. Don't be surprised when opposition comes. It's what has always happened when the gospel goes out. Opposition is not odd. It is normal. I came across um, some work of a a man named Ben Kwashi recently. He's a church leader in Nigeria, in Africa. Um, In an interview that I read of Ben, um, the last question he was asked was this. This is the question. Ben, you visited many parts of the West You know the culture is getting more hostile to things Christian. What would you say to us in the West? And this is his answer. It's on the screen. Listen to the word of God. You must carry the gospel with your whole heart to your children, your relatives and friends. We must agonize in prayer and share the gospel. Inevitably, whether you do this or not, suffering will come your way. It is better to suffer for the gospel than to suffer for no gospel. Whatever is happening by way of Christian suffering around the world, do not think that you are insulated from it. I love that line. Um, it is better to suffer for the gospel than to, not than to suffer for no gospel. Gospel people, if you're a gospel person here tonight, gospel people will get kicked in the teeth. That's the reality of being a Christian. Because God's gospel keeps provoking opposition. Which is why the second thing we learn tonight from Acts chapter 19 is really worth remembering. The second thing we learn is God's gospel keeps enjoying protection. God's gospel keeps enjoying protection. Let me explain. Um, it's, it's hard to read this incident and not read into this incident in Ephesus, kind of like fierce spiritual battle being fought in Ephesus. Um, even though, did you notice, God isn't mentioned in this passage. You know that? God isn't mentioned in the passage and no Christian says a word in the passage. Did you, did you catch that as it was read out? God isn't mentioned, no Christian says a word in the passage. Of course, the evil one has his own champion in Demetrius. Um, Demetrius has a tendency to exaggerate the Christian threat. Verse 27, he says, there is a danger, our trade will lose its good name. There's no evidence of a recession in Ephesus. But Demetrius, right, moves really quickly um, away from purely financial interests to more spiritual concerns. Um, have a look with me, verse 27 in your Bible. He says, The great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so as a result of that, he stirs up the mobs. Have a look, verse 29. Soon the whole city was in uproar. He's clearly a little short on strategy. Um, I, reckon he's, I reckon Luke, as he wrote this verse, is, a, is kind of chuckling on the inside. Listen to this. Um, verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. 
Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Maybe that's you tonight here at church. I don't know. Um, It happens like that sometimes. Then the Jews, right, they try to get in a word, no doubt to distance themselves from the Christians or the Jesus followers in the city, just in case some sweeping new legislation comes in so they can sort of avoid getting into trouble. But they're simply like shouted down. Um, Verse 34, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, like there's no reasoned, logical, thoughtful expose of Christianity here. No reason to label these Christians as uncivilised or outside of the norms. As one commentator writes, quote, the only thing heathenism can do against the gospel is shout itself hoarse. I like that. And at this point, I don't know, at this point, if I was writing the story, if I was recording the history of the church at this moment, Certainly, if I was making it up, I'd bring in the Christian hero to the platform. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't you do that? You know, here's this riot. Christians are getting accused of stuff and it's all getting out of control and maybe the Christians are going to get taken to the law courts, etc., etc. Wouldn't you want to bring in the big gun Christian, right, just to stand up and with a sharp, beautiful, powerful, succinct gospel presentation that is just so logical, so rational, so beautiful and so compelling? Wouldn't you want that? But as I read Acts 19, I hope you have it open in front of you, it just doesn't happen. Paul, the great apostle, he wants to step up. You know, he wants to, he wants to do that very thing. But have a look at verse 30. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, probably not believers as far as we know, sent him a message, please don't venture into the theatre. Paul's just on the sidelines. There's a Christian eye surgeon who decided to serve overseas as a Christian missionary um, using his skills as an eye surgeon to bless a Southeast Asian country which uh, wasn't very welcoming of the Christian gospel or Christians in general. But he was able to go there as an eye surgeon to help change lives through the skills that he had. And no doubt, as he did that, have opportunities to to share the good news of Jesus with people around him. Um, He was so good at what he did and he had such a wonderful impact in in his work that he was awarded a particular prize. And so an opportunity came and a a date was set where he was to be awarded this particular prize, this award. And so as this award, you know, the day came that the dignitaries came in, um, some of the secret police were present and they were there and all the people from the hospital, everyone gathered around to watch this award. One of the officials came up just beside him and said, we know why you're here in this country. Now is not the time to tell us. It was a friendly warning, but it was a warning nonetheless. I suspect that's what some of the officials were like with the Apostle Paul here. Now is not the time, Paul. And the Apostle stays mute on the sidelines while the battle rages on. God will keep his gospel without his Apostle. Actually, without having a single player on the field, it would seem. The city clerk, right, he isn't even a believer. If anything, he's the opposite of Demetrius. He tends to underestimate the power of Christianity. So have a look at verse 35. He says, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? 
And he's like, our temple, everyone, our religion. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We don't need to worry about a bunch of shabby Christians, you know, doing a few little things around the place. People come to Ephesus to see Artemis. Look at our travel brochures. She's there. Everyone comes. Isn't hindsight a wonderful thing? Who has heard of Artemis today? You look at the package brochures for Ephesus today, come to Ephesus, what's left of it, and you follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And as the dust settles on this whole incident, there is only one winner, and the winner is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The gospel is acquitted of all charges. Verse 37, you've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. It is no threat to the life of the empire. Rome need have no quarrel with the gospel. Paul will say with integrity, just a few chapters ahead, Acts 25 verse 8, quote, I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. The gospel passport is stamped for onward travel to Rome. Visa granted. This, this was a long probably really tense, frightening after the afternoon for those who were caught up in it back in Ephesus in the first century. But it was also a really good afternoon's work. Such a good afternoon's work that Luke, the author of Acts, thought it was worth recording in detail, even though God stayed backstage the whole time. As we come to an end tonight before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I've been reflecting on this story this week, seeking to learn from it. Obviously, we learn those two things that, you know, God's gospel will always provoke opposition. We learn as well that God's gospel will, will always find God's protection. God will always allow his gospel to advance with or without us on the field. But I was struck, I was struck afresh as I study this passage, of the reminder to me that I can have complete confidence in God. I can have complete confidence in God, a confidence that I quickly lose. But here's a reminder that we can have absolute confidence in God. And here is a, here's a reminder in this passage to not go on the back foot with the gospel too quickly, to not go all defensive, to not go all apologetic, we can't say that gospel Christianity is within you know, every country's laws anymore. We've seen people write laws to stop the gospel. Acts doesn't promise freedom from harm for gospel believers in every incident. But the God who sacrificed to give us the gospel, who gave his one and only son, who allows his people to follow in Jesus' footsteps, that God will guard his gospel's purposes and that God will guard his people. I am, we are, to keep on with the gospel, even though we may very well get kicked in the teeth. I don't know, I feel like that's not a bad message as we start 2020. We are to keep on with the gospel, even though we might get kicked in the teeth. You know, one thing we don't learn from Acts 19 is that, you know, we can be assured of what every day's outcome is going to be like. We don't learn that in Acts 19. 
We, I can't go forward, you know, nor can we say, well, I can't go forward with the gospel, you know, unless the odds look really good and in my favour and everything's aligned. We, we don't learn that from this incident in Ephesus. But we can go forward. We must go forward. We must go forward with complete confidence in the God who will ensure that his gospel will achieve its purposes, whether he uses his spokesmen or spokeswomen. So brothers and sisters, stay on the front foot. 2020, stay on the front foot. It's better to suffer for the gospel than to suffer for no gospel. Before I pray, just let me read the words of a great old hymn, hymn written in 1815. It's called, We Have a Gospel to Proclaim. The writer says, We have a gospel to proclaim, good news for men in all the earth. The gospel of a saviour's name, we sing his glory, tell his worth. Tell of his birth at Bethlehem, not in a royal house or hall, but in a stable dark and dim, the word made flesh a light for all. Tell of his death at Calvary, hated by those he came to save, in lowly suffering on the cross for all he loved, his life he gave. Tell of that glorious Easter morn, empty the tomb for he was free, he broke the power of death and hell that we might share his victory. Now we rejoice to name him King. Jesus is Lord of all the earth. This gospel message we proclaim, we sing his glory, we tell his worth. Let's pray, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you that you've preserved this incident in Ephesus for us, recorded in this chapter of your word. Father, thank you for the way that we learn in this chapter that we can have absolute confidence in you, come what may. Lord, thank you that um, in this incident, our Father, we're reminded that your gospel, as it goes out, always provokes opposition. And so, Lord, we pray with thanks for that reminder as we start this year in some ways. Reminder that as we live for you and love like you in this world, there is an ever-increasing chance that we will be received poorly by those around us. Father, strengthen us, help us to continue to be faithful followers of Jesus. And Father, thank you that as we live in this world seeking to do gospel ministry, Father, we thank you that you are the one who protects your people and protects your gospel. Father, we thank you for the reminder here that even though you're not mentioned, even though your people don't say a word, your gospel keeps going out. But Father, do help us to be men and women who do boldly, And courageously, with the help of your spirit, proclaim the worth and the beauty and the forgiveness that is only found in Jesus. So Lord, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church/northadelaide.